Happy Resurrection Week. It's the beginning of the Resurrection Week, and uh, thanks to Dave and Carol Mahler, I have my little palm branch. Uh, Jeff mentioned this, but uh, you can get your own palm branch in Sunday school. It's actually in the cafe today, where uh, they go through a number of the passages leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And of course, Good Friday, this Friday night, we have a service about uh, the resurrection and then Sunday morning, or excuse me, the crucifixion on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday morning. Let's ask God to guide our time. Jesus saves. We thank you for Hosanna, the truth of it. We recognize that we are not saved through anything we do, any merit on our part, but through the finished work of your Son, Jesus. And Father, we thank you that it's a free gift offered to all, all who would believe that Jesus took upon himself our sin and the penalty of sin, which is death, and then rose again on the third day as the first fruit of resurrection. And we ask, Father, that that truth would be on our lips as we share with others throughout this resurrection week. And Father, as we come to Luke 17, 1-6, we ask that you would take your inspired and errant word and you would challenge us by it and we would be impacted by the truth of your scripture. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Kylie was 19 years old. It was 2009. She had just beaten out 10,000 other contestants. And now she would fulfill her dream. She would be a model for Victoria's Secret. Now, I'm sure I've got your attention. You're wondering how on earth I could bring up such a topic on a Sunday morning, the beginning of Resurrection Week. But give me a moment. Put your stones down just for a moment. At age 20, Kylie became a born-again believer. She became a Christ follower. And she began to read the Scriptures she soon after that got married, and she said over the next short amount of time, she became convicted that her body was made in the image of God, and that she was in a one-man, one-woman marriage relationship, and that she was involved in a job that did not square with her convictions that she was growing in, in the Word of God. She also became quite convicted because a number of young girls looked up to Kylie as a role model. And she said, in my profession, you're asked to do things that clearly cross the line. And so in an interview with a major network, she talked about having 
achieved her dream at age eight, excuse me, age 19, and walking away from her dream just a few short later, years later. She said, everything I had desired as a child had come true, but it was not what I wanted. It was not what God wanted, and she walked away. She said, I feared the damage it was doing to my marriage relationship. I feared the damage it was doing to my relationship with the Lord, and I feared being an impact, a role model for those younger and leading them in a direction that might not be appropriate for their life. I think Kylie was wise to to embrace those truths. Let me read to us the first two verses of Luke 17. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one, woe, you don't want Jesus saying that, woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And she feared that as a Christ follower, she was and is a role model, and that is true for each of us. If you have children, you're a role model. If you have grandchildren, you're a role model. If you're a Christ follower at work, you're a role model. If you and I go out in the neighborhood, we're role models. If you're in school and you're in the locker room, you're a role model. If you're sitting at a desk at school, you're a role model. As Christ followers, we are role models even when we think nobody is watching or nobody is listening. We are role models. And the text tells us, whoa, it would be better to hang a millstone around our neck, be thrown into the depth of the sea, go down to Davy Jones's locker. It would be better if that happened than to lead one of these little ones astray. I think of Pastor Gordon McDonald in something he wrote several years ago in Leadership Magazine. He said, I was outside in On the side of our building in Manhattan, we have some garbage cans, and I went around the corner, and there was a homeless man, and he was ravaging through our garbage cans. And it bothered me. It annoyed me. And so I said, hey, buddy, when you're done ravaging through our garbage cans, can you tidy up and make sure the lids are back on? And then I turned around and started to walk away. And he said, hold it, pastor. I hate when they do that. That pastor thing means that I'm a role model. That Christ follower thing, it means that we're role models. He said, wait a minute, pastor. He said, I'd be happy to do what you ask, but could you ask me with respect? Gordon said instantly, I was cut in my heart, and I realized how arrogant a man I had become And with real humility, I walked over and I embraced the man. I shook his hand. And I said, it would really be important to me if when you were done, if you tidy up, would you do that for me? 
And the man said, sure, pastor. And they shook hands. And Gordon McDonald reminded himself, he reminds us, that we are role models. We are imitators of Christ. If we know Christ, and we are to role model what Christ would desire to live through us to the world. Let's pick up in our text. I want to read verses 1 to 6 and listen to what Jesus has for us. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe, woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea but then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention, Jeff. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must. It's a command. It's an imperative. You must. Forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey. Jesus begins with a few words I think all would agree. Whether one is a Christ follower or not, he says that temptations are all around us. All of us are impacted by temptation. And how true that is. But the word he uses is from our work, scandalize. It's scandalon. It actually means that we're tempting someone else towards sin. He said it would be better if a millstone were placed around your neck, you were thrown into the midst of the sea, you descended to Davy, Locker's jo- or Davy Jones's locker, it would be better if that happened than if you lead one of these little ones, one of these young ones in the faith, one of these individuals who are seeking faith, it would be better that you die than lead such a one astray. If you scandalize their faith. This is the same word used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. Let me read that to us. Whoever loves his brother abides in the life, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. That is, we have no right to cause someone else to stumble. But the truth of the matter is, there are many communicable sins. Now, that's not exactly a theological term. We tend to use communicable with attributes, but I'm going to use it today with sin. There are many communicable sins, that is, sins that we commit that by their very nature draw others in and tempt others, scandalize others to join us in those sins. One such sin is gossip. It's kind of hard to gossip on one's own. It's kind of a communicable sin. When I gossip, I'm drawing someone else in to gossip with me. Proverbs eleven thirteen says this. Gossip betrays a confident, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. 
Another communicable sin, there's so many. I'm only going to mention four. Another communicable sin, especially in our state, is the sin to drink too much. Buddies get together and gals get together and couples get together and friends get together and they urge one another on to drink too much. It's a communicable sin. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler, but whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Yet another communicable sin is a complaining spirit. I need someone to complain to. And so I complain and join someone else in with my sin. Philippians 2.14 says, Do everything without complaining or arguing. Yet another communicable sin often is immorality. It often requires two or more people. Ephesians 5 verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness was not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. I remember a song that uh, we used to sing to our kids. I'm going to spare you. I'm just going to read the text. It's Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. All of these are communicable sins. They're common sins and the potential to drag someone else into the midst of our sin, exists with each one of these. And the text is all over the idea of we are role models. We dare not scandalize someone's faith. Better that we should hang a millstone around our neck, be thrown into the midst of the sea, than lead one of these little ones, someone seeking out faith, someone growing in faith, someone young in the faith, that they would be scandalized by us. But it's not just our actions. It's also our theology. And I want to be careful this morning. I was talking to a friend, a pastor friend the other day. He took me aside at a meeting I was in and he said, Jeff, uh, I don't know what to do. I took a minor issue on Sunday and I made it a major. And I'm going to lose families over it. And I said, well, now you know what you're preaching this Sunday, don't you? You're going to go back, as all pastors have. We're going to go back and, and talk about what we said last week and reword it. And he took a minor issue and he made it a major. So I want to give us a little distinction between minor issues and major this morning. Minor issues, we might have book, chapter, and verse for but they're not the issues that ought to divide us in fellowship. They're the issues that sincere believers can look at the same text and come to slightly divergent conclusions. We ought to be convinced in our heart on minor issues, but don't take those minor issues and divide fellowship. And that's what my friend did. What might some of those issues look like? They might be all of the specific details of the end times. We're not talking about a literal heaven and a literal hell and that they're both eternal. We're talking about the mechanisms leading up to that, whether we're premillennial and pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib or all mill. Be convinced in your heart. Find book, chapter, and verse, but don't divide fellowship over it. 
It might be issues on which is the favorite or the only right version of the Bible. And it might be that we are NIV or ESV or KJV or NKJV or NLT or NASB or whatever your favorite one is that I omitted this morning. We ought to have a preference for sure. I have my preferences. You have your preferences. But we don't divide fellowship over it. It ought to be issues on how do we school our children? Do we homeschool or do we public school? Do we private school or do we virtual school? Be convinced in your heart, but don't push that on someone else. Or an exact political position on every issue. I'm not talking about moral issues or ethical issues. I'm talking about issues in which the Bible tangentially talks about, but sincere believers might have divergent views. We ought to extend grace one to another. Or even how divine election and free will work. You know how many opinions there are in this room on how divine election and free will work? Five more than there are people. That's how many opinions actually exist in this room. We ought to look at Scripture. We ought to search Scripture, but we ought to be careful not to make it a dividing wall of hostility. But then there are other issues. These are the ones that we have to stand firm on because if we don't, they truly scandalize someone. They devalue somebody else's faith. They devalue our faith. What might some of those issues be? I think inerrancy, the truthfulness of Scripture, inspiration. First Peter chapter 1, 21, that God carried men along so that what is written is exactly what God intended. The canon, 39 Old Testament books, and 27 New Testament books as the completed work written by God's will that he wants us to understand and live out and believe. I think the Trinity, God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that there is a relationship between the three in which they have different roles, but they are in every way equal. And they are in every way infinite. And they work in concert one with another. And yet there is also a oneness among the three. The hypostatic union of Christ. Jesus Christ is fully God. And at some point in time, 2,000 years ago, he came to earth. And fully God in the second person, Jesus Christ, took on humanity. And even at this moment, he is fully God and fully man. The deity of Christ the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that Jesus went to the cross, that he paid the penalty of sin, that he took sin upon himself, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. And he endured the punishment and the scorn of our sin and the righteous wrath of God. And he died and on the third day, he rose again victoriously that if we would believe in him, we would be given eternal life and eternal heaven and eternal hell. These are foundation pieces. And to go outside of that is to historically end up 
and heretical belief. These are the foundation pieces that we stand on. And if we don't, we scandalize our faith and we scandalize the faith of another. Jesus said, it would be better if a millstone were hung around my neck and I was thrown into the depths of the sea than if I should cause one of these young ones, one of these little ones, one of these seeking ones to be scandalized in their faith. This truth requires not only that we teach and live right, but that we recommend books and podcasts and teachers that are also teaching biblical historical truth. Because if we offer somebody teachers that are not teaching historical truth, we might end up scandalizing someone's faith, the next generation. Millstones. Jesus said, it's better you put a millstone around your neck. Millstones are rather big. I got a picture of a millstone. Some of you may recognize it. If you've been to Israel with me, you've seen that particular millstone. The millstone is the stone on top where you would have a hole and there would be a post. And on the other end of the post, you would attach a beast of burden and then you would encourage the beast of burden to walk around and around and around. And inside, in this particular one, you would place olives. Now, many millstones you would place wheat, but this one is for olives, and you place the olives there, bushels of olives, and the animal would go around, and the millstone would crush the olives. And there's a little hole, you can't see it, but it's there, and the juice would go down, and on the backside there's a little spigot, and they would begin to bottle the olive oil. Now, that particular millstone's pretty small, it's about 1,500 pounds. The average millstone is between 1,500 and 3,000 pounds. They don't make the best floaties. They really don't. But Jesus says, it would be better to put a millstone around my neck than to scandalize through my life, through my theology, one of these Young ones, young in the faith, young in age, someone who is seeking truth to scandalize them and to cause them to be one step further rather than one step closer in their relationship with Christ. I think this is why James says in James 3.1, he says, Let not many of you presume to be teachers, my brethren, for do you not know that you who teach will certainly incur a stricter judgment. In other words, we who are role models, that's all of us, will be held accountable before the Lord for the life we live and the theology we teach and the lines that we draw between what is historic truth and what are areas in which we ought to be convinced, but we don't divide fellowship, how we live out our life will matter. And God will hold us accountable because he cares. He cares for the least of these. He cares for the one who's seeking truth. He cares for the one who is young in the faith. He cares for the one who doesn't have faith. 
And if you're here today and you don't have faith, I'm thankful you're here. And Jesus is thankful you're here because he cares. And if you're here today and you have great faith, faith, God is thankful you're here. I'm thankful you're here. God wants us to be here. And so when we lead in worship, they're always asking me to sing, but I don't ever let them do it. But when we lead in worship up here in song, we're role models. It doesn't just matter what we sing on Sunday. It matters how we act on Monday. We volunteer in One Way Club or Generation 180 or Children's Church or Sunday School or with Women of Real Devotion or Mops or Mops Next or the Single Ministry or the Men's Ministry or we host a life group or we teach a life group or we're out in the community. It matters. It matters how I live. It matters how you live. People are watching. We are role models And Jesus said, it'd be better for me to tie a millstone around my neck and cast myself into the sea than to lead one of these little ones ones astray. That's why verse 3 starts out, pay attention. Pay attention to yourselves. And then he goes on to say, if your brother sins, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins... Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And we might ask, well, how do these verses go together? Because again, we have a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block if we are mature in our faith and we're arrogant. If we're mature in our faith and we're judgmental. If we're mature in our faith and we lack grace and we lack empathy and we lack forgiveness, it's a stumbling block if we look down on people. And so the text says, if someone comes to you and they sin against you, forgive them. And then at 9 o'clock they sin against you and you have to forgive them. And at 11 o'clock they sin against you and you have to forgive them. And at 1 o'clock and at 3 o'clock and at 5 o'clock and at 7 o'clock. And at this point you're saying, man, where's that millstone? I want to tie it around their neck. And Jesus says, no. No. Because it's a stumbling block to have such arrogance. It's a stumbling block to lack charity. It's a stumbling block to lack grace. And so you say, well, can I point something out to you theologically, Jesus? The word repent means change. So if they repent, they shouldn't be coming back at 9 and at 11 and at 1 and at 3 and at 5 and at 7. And Jesus is so patient. And he says, Jeff, look in the mirror. How many times have you come back at 9 and 11 at 1 and at 3 and at 5 and at 7? In your case, Jeff, you also do the odd hours. You're always back here. And Jeff, when someone asks you for forgiveness and they say they've repented and they do it seven times, more likely than not, a few of those are false. But what if you don't forgive the one that's real? 
because you think it's false. Better that you be burned. Better that you suffer a little loss than to scandalize somebody's faith when they really repent. You say, no, 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 I've heard it all before. You've done it all before. I'm not giving you another chance. Jesus said it's better to tie that millstone around one's neck than to lead one of these little ones astray. I think of Louis XII of France, 1465 to 1515. Louis, uh, prior to becoming king, was incarcerated. He was actually put into prison under false pretenses, trumped up charges. He spent time behind bars because of individuals who lied about him. And when he became king, a number of his advisors said, you know, it's time for payback. It's time to get those individuals a little lesson learned. Let's take their lives. Why don't you take this parchment, write down their names, write down their crimes, and we'll publish it. And Louis XII did that. He wrote down all the names of the people who falsely accused him. He wrote down all their crimes. And then he had a third ledger and he took a blood red pen, crimson. And he drew a cross next to every one of them. And he published the parchment. And every man's name that was on that parchment considered themselves dead men walking. They saw the crimson and they knew that this was a death threat against their lives. And when that got back to Louis Twelfth, he clarified. He said, that's not a death threat. That's the crimson blood of Christ shed for me. That's the Luke 23, 34, where Jesus looked down from the cross at individuals who didn't ask for forgiveness. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. And that crimson cross represents my forgiveness of each one of you. We are never more like Christ than when we extend forgiveness to another. And yet, I love the disciples' response in verse 5. Jesus, in verses 3 and 4, he says, If someone comes to you and asks for forgiveness, forgive them. And if they ask seven times in the same day, Forgive them if they ask for repentance. And I love what the disciples say. There's a paragraph break in my Bible. I think it's a bad one. I think verse 5 belongs with verse 4. They say, increase my faith. In other words, I can't do this. I can hardly forgive somebody once. And you're asking me to forgive the same person seven times in the same day? I'm not up to the task. Increase my faith. And that's the cry of Christ's followers. That ought to be the cry of Christ's followers every day. Increase my faith. Empower me by your spirit. Allow me to forgive. I don't want to do it once. And you're asking me to do it seven times with the same person, with the same crime, in the same day. Increase my faith. And Jesus goes on to say, if you have faith like a mustard seed, 
you could say to a mulberry tree, be derooted and throw yourself into the sea and it would happen. Now that's quite a statement, but even more so in the first century. I love mulberries. I don't know if you're familiar with mulberry trees. They're beautiful. Little purple bear, oh, beautiful tree. But they were proverbial in the first century for trees that had incredible roots. We actually have a first century rabbi writing that a mulberry tree, once it's able to get its roots down, those roots are strong enough to support the tree for 600 years. So the roots of a mulberry tree are proverbial for strength, for long lasting. And Jesus says, if you have the faith only of a mustard seed, the smallest seed, you could say to a deeply rooted mulberry, jump up, go and throw yourself in the sea and it will do it. Because the strength of a mulberry, proverbial for very strong, is minimal compared to the strength of what Christ wants to infuse in us through his spirit. And so the disciples say, increase our faith. And God says, I'll do it. I'll do it. You ask for it, I'll increase it. You ask for the ability to have grace, I'll increase it. You ask for the ability to have empathy, I'll increase it. Ask, and it will be given unto you. I'll give you the strength. So how do we conclude this morning? Three quick thoughts. First, our orthodoxy matters. Our theology really matters. We can cause a weaker one to be scandalized in their faith when we avoid the hard topics. Our theology matters. Two, not only does our orthodoxy matter, our orthopraxy matters. How we live out our faith matters. We are role models whether we like it or not. It was Charles Barkley who said years ago, I'm not a role model, but he was. He is. And so are you. So am I. We are role models. Our orthodoxy matters. Our orthopraxy, living out our faith, matters. And third, our grace and empathy matter. God wants to increase the grace and empathy in our life so that when someone comes and says, I repent, and I repent, and I repent, and I repent, oh yeah, and I repent, and I repent, and I repent, we have the grace. Now repent does not mean restore. It doesn't mean that when someone says, I confess and I've turned from my sin, that we put them exactly back where they were. That's not true. There's always repercussions and sometimes long-term effects of sin, but we no longer pass judgment. We extend grace. We extend empathy. We extend the right hand of fellowship. That's what it means to forgive. Our orthodoxy matters. Our orthopraxy matters. And our grace matters. And God longs for us to say, increase our faith. Let's pray. Father God, we do ask that you would increase our faith. We ask, Father, that 
we would, without arrogance, stand on the truth of your word. We ask that without arrogance, you would empower us to live out the truth of your word. And we pray that you would increase our grace and empathy. Father, we do not want to cause one of these least of these, one of these seeking ones, one of these young ones in the faith to be scandalized. So we ask that you would solidify our orthodoxy, constantly work through our orthopraxy, and give us your grace. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.